Welcome, my mishpoche. Welcome to Self-Improved. We've got more chokhmah from Maxwell Maltz, the goat, the machmir to self-imagery. Anyways, folks, I cannot wait to break this down. This is part three. Enjoy, and Shabbat Shalom for my yidin. Happy Friday for my goyim, and happy weekend. <laughs> is that a word? Happy weekend. Yeah, enjoy your weekend, folks. Let's get into it. Think about this. A dancer doesn't think about where they put their foot. Just like a pianist will not think about where they're putting each individual finger on the keys. Our personalities, according to Maxwell Maltz, are no different. We just do. We don't necessarily think about our personality. However, if a dancer or the pianist wanted to move their body a certain way to a different place, they could do it. They'd have to be very conscious about it, and it would take maybe a month for that to become subconscious, but they could do it. We can do the same thing with our personalities, hypothetically. If you focus on one area of your personality, which, again, your personality is this, how you think, feel, or behave. So if you narrow in on those three factors, and you really focus on that for roughly a month, you will change it. And we all do this without thinking about it, okay? Growing up, different slang came around we would think about what to say and we would change the way we talk just like you would think about how you wore clothing and you would change the way you look uh, which changes the way you feel <laughs> when you learn how to deal with arguments and stuff like that you consciously learn how to deal with arguments you same with manners if you want to change the manners opening a door for someone you're conscious about that at first and then it becomes subconscious and it becomes a part of your personality that is how folks you can change your personality it is not set in stone now there's that's a half truth part of our personality is set in stone because of nature versus nurture we can't change our environment to an extent <laughs> um so there you go and without going down a rabbit hole because i could have just gone on a tangent i'll keep it at that there's a quote from the book I want to talk about. People who say that life isn't worthwhile are really saying that they themselves have no personal goals that are worthwhile. And this reminds me of how we are goal-seeking mechanisms. Us human beings, we love the chase. When we have a goal, we feel we have a purpose and we can just focus on that thing. It actually, excuse me, it reminds me of cats that see the laser and they love the, ch the chase, excuse me. They love the chase, but when they reach the laser or they get to the toy what do they do they stop playing and they they kick it away farther so they can chase it again we are mammals we're no different we have our own toys we like to chase and those usually come in the form of a goal so if someone has no goals and they're stagnant they are going to also look at life as one of stagnance and despair sorry to break it to you but when, and again, like the goal doesn't have to be selling 300 cars a year. It doesn't have to be tangible. It can be intangible. To have a goal to expand your gratitude, to expand this and that, like emotional soft skills, you're going to strive for it and you're going to see life is worthwhile. You're going to slowly get there. Anyways, spiel over. You'll talk to somebody and next time you see someone and they go, eh, and you say, How, how's life? And they go, eh, same as usual. Same thing, doing the same thing, man. And then there's that tone. You can go, oh, they, they need to create a worthwhile goal. You, you, that, that's what you, you're going to start to realize. That some of these people just, they really need drive. 
And that's why I'm a huge advocate for, like, people going and starting karate, starting an artwork, pottery class, like, doing something so they can have something superficial to strive towards to kind of give their life meaning. There's a story coming up I'll talk about, and it was really cool. It was at the end of the book. You know, maybe I'll just give you a paraphrase now so it makes sense. Is this guy, he hated his job. He was a public speaker. He was getting burnt out, wanted to retire. So what he did, he decided, when I retire, I'm going to golf. I'm going to go and golf every major course in the U.S. So he said, I'm going to get a head start on this goal. He started to do it in his last few events. And then he, he actually started looking forward to those events. And this, this was astonishing to him. He goes, oh, my God. And he didn't retire. He kept working. And he, he had a new love for his job because it, it wasn't that it was the, the job per se. Like he needed to tie something hedonistic to the task. And let's come full circle here. People that say life isn't worthwhile, maybe they just need to tie a little bit of hedonism to their life. We call that in fitness self-negotiation. When someone plays their favorite song or podcast when they exercise. That's them negotiating that I only get to watch that YouTube video when I exercise. And uh, I hope that helps you because it helps a lot of folks with weight loss and increasing strength. And obviously it can help our careers too. Now this actually personally helped me a lot. I was quite hopeless. I had gotten stagnant. Life was getting a little mundane, to be honest. A real estate opportunity has come up and it gave me tons of hope where I didn't feel the same things I felt anymore. I didn't need the help I needed anymore. Like I, and not to, I don't want to dive into my personal stuff. I'm not comfortable doing that right now. But like th- that alone, giving myself some purpose fuck it helped wow and i can't tell that tell you that enough like go get some hope i never realized how important hope is as a human we need hope people and if you feel you don't have tons of it like please find something that will give you hope because it was scary for me and, and hope saved me honestly listen up all problems personal or not they become smaller when you don't dodge but confront them please please take that away for the next time you get into some debacle or predicament with somebody it reminds me from think like a monk he says if you put a teaspoon of salt water in a shot glass it will be so bitter if you put a teaspoon of salt water in the lake you will not taste it when we narrow in on a situation that's stressful it sucks but when we zoom out look at the bigger picture it really doesn't affect us and it's okay this is no problem things become smaller when we Don't dodge, but confront them. Talking about stuff helps. It's that simple. It helped me big time during a time of crisis to just get it out. Otherwise, goodness, I don't even want to know what would have happened. And like for most people, discussing things. In at the end of this book, he actually brings this up again. And he talks about a story of this guy that he was dodging this traumatic moment and he was in a bar fight and it was really traumatic and he almost died and like he dodged it. And then one day he actually came to terms with it. And when he did that, it it caused a ripple effect, which I'll explain later on in the podcast because I don't want to go on a tangent. Confront issues and they get smaller people. Do not dodge them. In chapter eight, there's this cool thing and he kind of contradicts himself here. So first he uses an analogy. When we're trying to stick a needle through some thread, we start shaking or we might miss the mark a little bit because we're super focused on the fine motor skill. But if we were to do it quick, like we're not, we're, we're relaxed. 
So he says, when we focus too hard on what we say, we can actually say the wrong thing, stutter, stumble over words. This doesn't project confidence. And this actually makes a person feel less confident when they cannot articulate their thoughts or say things they want well. He says, don't think about it and you will exuberate confidence. That's a quote from the book. Now, this is contradictory because as I told you previously, the dancer, the pianist, he says, like, if you focus on a part of your personality, which remember, how you speak is a part of your personality. He's saying here, don't focus on it. But in the past, he said to focus on it if you want to change it. So that's what I'm saying. Like, what is it? Okay. Like, <laughs> you tell me. I don't know. I personally think you can change the way you talk when you focus on it. And I'm saying this because I anecdotally have done it. I got really fascinated with tonality, um, uh, the linguistic component to tonality. So, like, literally how the words I'm choosing to say and, and then how I say them with, like, the pitch going up and down at certain times. So, even notice the way I'm talking right now. I will increase my tone when I want to get you hooked. And then if I'm summarizing to tell you that I'm summarizing the sentence and finishing it without having to articulate that I digress, I lower my tone. And you know the sentence is ending when I lower the tone or slow down my speaking. I, when I was a teenager, like most teenagers, I was just monotone. I was talking like this and not really moving my lips at all. And it was, and I had to actually work on that myself. And now I can keep people quite compelled when I talk because I know how to keep them hooked with my tonality. And anyways, it sounds so nuanced because it is, but this is something I've done. You can do the same thing. That's why I disagree with him that you don't just talk and get it. I think you should focus on what you say, even if you stumble at first. We all stumbled when we rode a bike at first. Isn't that the fact? Isn't that the truth? You will get used to it just like riding a bike, okay? So that's why I disagree with him here. Here's a quote for you. When you no longer feel condemnation is when you have forgiven. For those that are wondering, condemnation, the literal definition, I have it popped up, is the expression of very strong disapproval or censure. Censure. It's a very fancy word, eh? Censure. But yeah, the expression of very strong disapproval. Another definition is the action of condemning someone to be punished or sentenced. Okay, so that, they actually go hand in hand because let's look at a real life situation. The book, once again, I'll remind you, it says, when you no longer feel condemnation is when you've forgiven. So let's, uh, let's break down forgiveness real quick. Think about it. If you no longer disapprove of what a person did because, no, I'm not going to dive in right now. When you no longer disapprove of what someone did, you'll forgive them. Now, now I'll dive, okay? Why is it you no longer disapprove of what they did? It's because you realize it wasn't their fault that they were projecting. Nothing is anyone's fault. We're always projecting baggage. And same with the second definition. When you no longer feel you want to punish someone, it ties into the disapproval. You no longer want to punish them because you understand they were just applying knowledge from their past. And then you start to sympathize. You actually feel bad for that person for having a really shitty past. And that is true forgiveness when you realize that they were just projecting and it wasn't their fault. It wasn't even the person that taught them how to project's fault because that person that taught them was simply applying knowledge they were taught. You understand what I'm saying? And it's this ripple effect that goes back longer than we can comprehend. And there's an, an old Chinese proverb. It goes like this. 
The man who has started his journey blames others. The man who's halfway there blames himself. And the man who has arrived blames no one. Because when you realize that projection is a thing, you do not blame anyone. I'm not saying you keep people in your life and just forgive everyone and keep them in your life. Because in the end, maybe you don't want their projection in your life. Maybe it's as that simple as you, just like I was talking earlier, you will not suffer that indignity. And so you will simply not let them in their life because you don't want to suffer an indignity. There, boom. And so there's nothing wrong with not having someone in your life. But at least you can forgive them and then say, peace out. I wish you only the best. I really do. And because then you're projecting love. So that's good vibes you're projecting. And that's why I actually started forgiving everybody when I learned this. And I really hope you do too. Not And, and please, don't take that as me having a superiority complex. Like I genuinely hope that you also start to forgive, even for the worst things. You don't have to keep them in your life. Just forgive because you know it, it. they're projecting and that's all they were doing. That's all they were doing. They didn't know any better. They didn't know any better, so you feel bad for them. It's like you don't get mad at little kids that don't know any better. You, you literally don't take that personal. This is really interesting here. It's some behavioral psychology for youth. When a child's taught not to express bad emotions, and I put in brackets here, perceived as bad emotions, so anger, jealousy, this actually teaches them not to express any emotions, so good ones too. Now this might ripple into them not wanting to express anything, which could ripple to stage fright or other avoidance coping, right? So think about it, someone might perceive crying, that's a bad thing because they're sad and that's a bad emotion to express because it doesn't represent toughness and that's an insecurity the parent is now putting on their kid. So if we teach the child that it's okay to cry, then now the kid is going to feel it's okay to cry. They're going to show their emotions. So then the next time they want to express their joy, they're not going to question it because uh, remember this folks. That a child, they only see their household as the world. If their parent does something, then the world does that. If their parent doesn't do something, then the world does not do that. So if a parent doesn't want them expressing sadness or anger in a healthy way, they learn that the world does not want them expressing that. Now, remember, a child is simply using application because we're like little machines. So if they are trying to apply their knowledge to survive, because that's what your brain only knows is survival, by when they express sadness, they got in trouble. So if they want to express anything, they might get in trouble. Therefore, they won't express anything because that fear of judgment and ridicule is there. How sad is that? that just by... Like you think because we're so much smarter than a child, we think we're teaching them not to be sad about something that doesn't matter, but they don't understand that. They just see it as don't express. Now, this is a theory. I'm not saying this is fact. Okay. This is a, I'm take this with a grain of salt. I find this a very cool theory. Now, if a child says I'm upset because I didn't get a Ferrari, like I, I don't believe in entitlement at all. We aren't entitled to anything, actually, because we're borrowing everything throughout life, even our attributes and characteristics. Because when we die, it gets passed on to someone else. And when we were born, it already existed and was handed to us. So 
aside from the fact that we are borrowing everything, we are not entitled to anything, okay? So, but let's say my kid says that. I will say this. I understand and I see that you are really upset. Boom. It's okay that they're upset. They learn it's okay to be upset. And I say, why don't you, um, or I teach them about gratitude. Think about what you have. Imagine life without what you have. And then now they learn negative visualization, which is, oh, if I didn't have what I already have, life would suck. So I'm really grateful for what I have. Boom. Now I've just told them it's okay to be sad, but it's also really good to love what you have. Notice how I didn't at all ridicule by saying, you should be this, you should be that. When I say that, now they're not thinking for themselves. And I'm, I'm stripping that authentic voice. And I never want to strip an authentic voice from my youth. Because otherwise, they're living on my agenda. If they start listening to what I tell them they should listen to, they're living on my agenda. And that's the one-way ticket to misery. Is when all of a sudden, one day, they have an identity crisis. Because they say, oh, shit. I have this whole life under an umbrella, which is an identity, and I actually don't at all identify as that anymore, because I'm starting to think for myself, because I left the house. That's where crisis comes in. So if I can get kids to think for themselves, and I say, what do you already have here? And they say what they already have, and I say, what if it was all gone? And then they tell me what they're thinking, and this way I let them think for themselves. I am not telling them how to think. But notice how I'm just guiding them because that's the job of a parent. You're kind of mm -hmm. guiding, you're holding their hand, but you're not making them live on your agenda to fulfill your ego, to fulfill your insecurities, shit you didn't do. That's not right. Talk about a way to give kids confidence too. Chapter 12 begins with a concept he calls letting the phone ring. And I know you're like, oh, where is this going to segue to? This is a cue. And it's actually to remind yourself to stay relaxed when you have bell moments. Now, these bell moments, it's referring to Pavlov's dogs. Have you heard of this scientist? Wait, I got to fact check that that's his name. Yep, yep, it's Pavlov. So Pavlov's dogs, he rang a bell. They salivated because they knew food was coming. So he stopped feeding them, and then they would still salivate because they were used to the bell being tied to food. We have bells, metaphorically, in our life. Typically, they're anxiety bells. The thing is, we don't have to have our physiology change out of our control because of pre-taught responses. Think of a child, and maybe you grew up in a household where someone was yelling when they were upset. And so you have a pre-taught response to go hide in your room or to yell back or something, and that is a bell. That now when that happens as an adult, you don't know any other way of behaving. He uses let the phone ring because that is typically another autonomic response we have. That's a cybernetic. When the phone rings, we immediately jump out of our seat. Our nervous system reacts. Our heart rate might spike a little. Cortisol definitely goes up, and we want to answer the phone. However, we don't have to answer the phone. And imagine, so he says, let it ring. Sit there, relax, and it's okay. Let that phone ring. You don't have to get up and get it. So metaphorically, the next time you get an anxiety bell, a depression bell, a stress bell, a love bell. You don't have to right away let that emotional brain kick in. You can use the logical brain and start reshaping your programming, right? Like now, like a, let's go back to changing personality. You can work on that. If you're conscious about it because you just heard me say it, you can work on it. And next thing you know, you will relax when you get these triggers. And yes, I'm going to use the word trigger. Now, he recommends Maxwell Maltz. He says, let's practice this. Go back 
to a moment in which you used one of these physiological reaction responses that think about it there's something in the past that you've done where you didn't think twice maybe it was literally picking the phone up i don't know just think of something you did automatically maybe you got cut off in traffic and you said something without thinking about like go back he wants you to now practice this visualize imagine letting the phone ring imagine getting cut off and not saying anything breathing and being okay imagine that not only will this slowly program your subconscious to do it in future situations, however, thanks to imagination and visualization, because I can't wait to tell you this, your body does not know the difference between what's fake and real. Somewhat. Your brain, at least. Your body knows, but your brain doesn't. So, by going back and replaying these moments and practicing in your head, you are, in essence, telling your brain... You're practicing in real life to your brain. Your brain thinks you're practicing in real life. By going back and visualizing. He loves, like the thesis of this book should really be positive mental imagery. Because he's a huge fan of mental imaging. Since your body doesn't know the difference between fake and real. I told you about dreams. Like our physiological state changes in dreams. Even though dreams are not real. It's no different here, okay? I'll say it one last time because I, I fucking love this information. Practice these, uh, practice reacting to these bells in past moments and your brain will not know it's past moments it will think you're practicing in real time so that when it comes up in real time your brain doesn't know any different it's autonomic subconscious god i'm so excited for you to practice that now just think about it so many people have anxiety bells that take them out of their healthy states whether they like it or not some people don't want to be taken out of that healthy state but they are and they hate it they go oh my god why did I? these sadly are fragile people they are fragile. They're easy to break. They have no defense. We need to program ourselves with info such as this so we can realize we don't need to metaphorically pick up the phone anymore. And then we are not fragile. We are in control. And that fucking fires you up. We're at 20 minutes. I'm going to leave it at that. We're going to do another probably final part to this. Wow, I love this book. This is going to be an annual or biannual read. One of those books that I got to read every few years just to refresh my memory because it really is great for my mental health and perception, I guess, and coping and, and just confidence because my self-image has sucked in the past. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed that. Take care and um, let's move on to the outro. Wasn't that something, people? I hope you apply some of this because as Dr. Lori Santos would say of the Happiness Lab and the Science of Well-Being from Yale, the G.I. Joe fallacy, knowing is half the battle, you must apply. I wish you the best out there in the real world. <laughs> We're off the digital world now when you stop listening to this. Go crush it. I wish you the best. Only love. Bye. <laughs>